Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined by Jacob. Hello. And today, we're going to be reviewing Ignoble. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. Yeah, so... Because of just our recording schedule, we're going to go back right to holiday break when we talk about this. Pretty much. So first, another game that I got to play while I was home for New Year's was... Uh, so another game that I got to play while I was home for uh, New Year's was a game called Pick Your Poison. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really interesting twist on the normal kind of Cards Against Humanity type gameplay. Sure, apples to apples. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So it's still got those ridiculous cards and things like that. But I think I like this because it adds a little bit of a more strategic edge to it. Because the way that it works is the judge has a hand of cards. Mm -hmm. They will then choose one of those cards and put it down. That is card A. Okay. All other players now look at their hands and try to choose a card B that will be as close to card A in terms of being bad or good or embarrassing or whatever as they can think of. Okay. And so they will submit those. The judge will then take a look at all of those cards, choose one of them to be their card B. That person gets one point. And then everyone then has cards to vote A or B. Which one would they rather? And whichever has the majority gets a point. So each person who voted for the majority one gets a point. But the interesting part here is that the judge only gets points if it is an exact 50-50 split. Oh, huh. Yeah. So the judge has an incentive to try to make these as equal as possible in uh, his or her eyes. Sure. And... It's happened a few times. Like I, I only played really one round of it, but we did manage to get, I think, twice. The judge actually got it fully 50-50. I'm not going to lie. That doesn't seem like very much. No, but when you think about it, it's just like you have to make sure... We were playing with nine people, so one judge and eight players. You have to make sure that four players are choosing each one of them. Mm-hmm. Like There were so many times that it was... You know, five to three. But making it, like, equal, like, exactly right down the middle is difficult. Yeah. So it, it's just a really cool balancing mechanic there. And the judge, of course, doesn't want it to be overbalanced either. Because if everyone chooses A, for example, instead of B, then the judge loses two points. Oh, shit. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm not usually the biggest fan of sort of you know, Cards Against Humanity type of gameplay. But that does sound like a pretty fun, unique twist. I think it's a lot more interesting than most of the Cards Against Humanity stuff because you have to choose one of these to do, and it's not just abstract, ridiculous, make sure that everything is as obscene as possible. It's just like, if you were in this situation that you had to choose one of these, which one would you choose? Mm-hmm. And then it, it, the would-you-rather kind of gaming aspect as well is... It's just interesting because you get to see what people actually care about and that kind of stuff. Because, like, you know, when, when anything had to do with, like, oh, never be able to get drunk again, I'm just like, I don't care. I'm going to choose right. that one. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, like, you know, the other things, like, there were ones that everyone in the room dies, right? Ugh. Other than you. Well, and, I mean, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And, it, and it's just like, when you have the people with significant others in the room, they are not choosing that one. Even... If the other one is horrible, they're not going to choose that one. So Sure, yeah. No, that's interesting that it sort of gets into not just 
wacky fun gameplay mm-hmm. but also kind of like never have i ever yeah head scratcher gameplay exactly because th- there were a lot of times during the game that that people were just like i really don't know what to choose mm-hmm. like both of these are really bad or like you know i don't know which one is a worse like this is just hard and i find that to be like the most interesting part of the game and not just laughter for the sake of ridiculousness huh so. all right well yeah i'm bringing it on down i'd love to play it sometime yeah for sure get some people together maybe play it on a stream yeah that would that would be a fun one it'd be pretty cool <laughs> figure out a way to get the the audience to choose one. Ooh, yes i like the way you're thinking there we go we'll do that at some point tabletop uh, day <laughs> yeah uh prepare for it yep as for my own part one of the games that i forgot to mention last week that i played over the holidays was betrayal at Baldur's gate which is basically just a reskin of betrayal at the house on the hill with thematic elements from Baldur's gate it doesn't actually use any of the characters at mm-hmm. least as far as i was able to observe but you know it's set in forgotten realms and it references a lot of those deities um magical items stuff like that it was pretty fun, I think. Overall, it played very similarly to Betrayal at the House on the Hill. The, You know, you have your character. Characters have mental stats, physical stats. You can yeah. increase or decrease them as you go. Eventually, a haunt is revealed. One or more people becomes the betrayer. So, pretty standard gameplay. One of the things that was different, and this was interesting, was that there are, rather than floors of the house so you know basement ground floor upper floor there are like essentially different terrains so you have interior exterior and catacombs so the tiles have colors on the back showing you which ones they are yeah and then every time you place a tile there are four different colored doorways and the doorway that you align with the room that you're exiting has to match the appropriate color. So okay. it has to be, you know, yellow to yellow or red to red, what have you. The others don't, but they do determine what type of terrain you reveal when you leave that room. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are some things that have four reds, meaning they open to four interior rooms. There are some things mm. that have only access to catacombs. Yeah. So it's it's a more, I think, dynamic way to build the environment than just, you know, this has to be an upper floor room or this has to be... A downstairs room. So that was interesting. And then one of the other really fun and interesting things that was different about Baldur's Gate as opposed to House on the Hill was that every character had a special ability Mm -hmm. in addition to their starting stats. So everybody's stats are differently balanced. You know, you've got the the rogue who's very speedy, but not very low knowledge, I think. Decent sanity. But then every class has a different ability. So the paladin could ignore the effects of one event Mm -hmm. for the purposes of continuing movement so you basically you know normally you enter a room with an event you stop moving you resolve that event if the paladin doesn't want to stop in that room they can ignore that event and then keep moving Hmm. the rogue as i mentioned isn't slowed or detained by the presence of enemies in their square so it's just little things they're essentially i would say on the value of an item yeah uh, but they're built into your character and so i think that sort of added a lot of depth and a lot of interesting layers to character selection yeah and then the haunts themselves were about what you'd expect you know i would say relatively the same difficulty relatively similar mechanics where you know one person becomes the traitor and there's 
a number of objects that you have to interact with that they're trying to collect and you're trying to stop them from collecting or they have a thing that they're trying to use to destroy you and you have to destroy it first. Yeah. If you've played Betrayal of the House on the Hill, nothing in terms of the haunts will surprise you about Betrayal of Baldur's Gate. But then again, I also don't think it has to surprise you. I think it was a, a very solid core mechanic and they added some extra flavor and I think it worked pretty well. There you go. I know that it sounds very interesting. and I've talked to a few people who have been really, very interested in playing. So it's, it's definitely on my list if I can get it to table at some point. Like, if I know anyone, that would be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, definitely. But you also got to play a little bit of Magic. I did. Uh, so while I was in Tulsa, which is where I was for New Year's, some of my friends from college got together, and we actually did a booster draft of the new Magic set, Unstable which for those of you who don't play Magic, any set that starts with Un, Unstable, Unglued, Unhinged, are essentially joke sets. They have completely ridiculous mechanics. They're not legal to play in any other deck or any other format. They're just designed to, one, be completely over over the top and ridiculous, and two, really push the limits of what card mechanics can do. They essentially use them as a design tool, but they make them cohesive internally, and mm-hmm. they say, here you go, play test these for us, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So we did a, a booster draft of that, and it was so much fun. It was <laughs> just the cards themselves are so goofy. They interact with sprockets and, and you know, augments and, like, stitching together. You can have a half-orc, half-kitten is a, <laughs> an actual creature that you can create. Uh, and not, not, oh, a, man. not a weak one, either. Some people won games with half-orc, half-kittens. But Impressive. So, yeah. It was it was just a lot of really goofy fun and it was it was cool for me cuz I used to enjoy playing magic but I stopped, you know, it's just a lot of money to keep investing in and so it was good to sort of flex those old muscles again. And yeah. I know we actually here in the DC area were talking to a friend of mine about putting together an unstable draft as well which we want to stream. So so keep your eyes out for that. Yeah, if you're into magic, if you're into goofiness, check it out. We'll keep you posted about the date coming up here pretty soon yeah for sure and there you go that's a look at what we've been playing my liege my liege yes what is it knave it's time to review the most noble uh, um wait a minute ignoble of board games ah yes ignoble i have so been looking forward to this and yeah, so Ignoble is a board game that, first of all, for disclaimer's sake, we did get for free from the designers. So we got it from Mr. Chris Brown of Dot Star Money. They made the game, and this is one of 50 copies currently available. And they sent it to us to look over, to review, to play, and uh, well, that's exactly what we did. Yeah. So. Let's talk a little bit about how the game works. Yeah, so Ignoble is essentially a trick-taking game. Um, players use decks of cards to try to win a hand mm-hmm. uh, by playing the highest value card. And if they do, they get to take stock in one of four different stocks. So you have coins, beasts, herbs, and the fourth least valuable thing. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's very similar to a lot of other classic trick-taking games. You know, you can think of spades pinochle stuff like that but the unique thing about it is that the decks themselves 
are comprised of the same cards every single time. It's a deck of four cards, and every card in, for example, the death deck yeah. is always the same. And every card in the king deck is always the same. So it's a lot closer to a state of perfect information where you know exactly what cards are in your hand, you know exactly what cards are in your opponent's hand because you saw them pick it up, and because the locations that you'll be bidding for, essentially playing tricks for, are public, you know that as well. So it's a lot more strategic than a lot of other trick-taking games. So with that, you play this game in rounds. The round is composed of pretty much four turns or four tricks in which you will use all four cards that you have in your hand. During each one of these, you will go ahead and play one of your cards, reveal them, and then whoever has the highest numbered card wins the trick. Now, what you're taking here is important to the game because you're taking the bounties on cards that are laid out in front of you. So the four for the round are laid out, and they have the, the different types, as Greg mentioned before. They could be, like, you know, this bounty has one coin, or this bounty has three beasts, or, or however else it's laid out. And you're pretty much fighting over that one card. Once that is resolved, you go on to the next card, next card, next card, and uh, discarding the cards that you have already used. Once all four cards is used, once all four tricks have been taken, you go ahead and shuffle up the deck again, deal out another four, and re-choose your decks. So, a little bit different in a two-player game. In a two-player game, you can't choose the same deck twice in a row, versus in anything more, you can take the same deck if you are able to choose it as right. many times in a row as you, as you can. Now, the turn order and when you choose, it depends on who has the least coins. So coins are the rarest of the resources, of the mm -hmm. stocks that, you're, that you can get. And whoever has the most is going to be the last to choose versus whoever is the least is going to be the first to choose. Exactly. In terms of uh, ties, you'll always go clockwise, so on and so forth. Now, the goal of the game is to get a very, very specific number of stocks. So in a four-player game, you are trying to get five of each color stock and exactly five of each color stock. Mm -hmm. In a three-player game, you're going for six. And in a two-player game, you're going for eight. And all of these have to be exact. And this is where another very interesting aspect comes in. You can only hold so many stocks on your board. So you have spaces for two overflow stocks. So enough space for four rows of five stocks, for example, for the four-player game. And then two spaces for overflow. And that's it. Once you like, fill up your overflow, let's say you got way too many of the beasts. You now have to you start using the spaces that you reserve for the other types of stock in order to hold those until you can discard them. So it's one of those really interesting balancing kind of mechanics because you want to win, but not always. Because if you win something that like puts you over, like you could be very well in a very, very bad place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely can. And sort of threading that needle, it brings us to another very important aspect of the cards, and that's their abilities. So in addition to having a value, a base value between 1 and 16, each card has an ability on it that allows you to do something slightly special. So some cards allow you to increase the number of stock that you take from a bounty, basically you know, increasing it by two or increasing it to six or what have you. 
Some cards allow you to toss stock, so that's what you would have to do in a situation where you're trying to engineer this very precise amount and you've accidentally gone overboard. Others of them will just mess with your opponents. You can take stock from them, you can increase the stock taken by other people. So if someone takes, you know, the last two coin that they need and you happen to have played a card that allows you to increase the bounty taken by two, then you've just pushed them into overflow and you've maybe really thrown off their strategy. So the abilities are almost, I would say, as important as knowing when to play the correct values of a card. Yeah, definitely. And I think that this especially comes into play because you know what the other people have. So I may know that Greg uh, has a card that can beat just about any of my other cards. He has death. He has the highest card in the game. Mm -hmm. I know that he wants the coins or something like that. Well, why don't I go ahead and play the ounce, which lets me steal one of his, his pieces if he plays death in that place. So it's like you're, you're trying to balance out the numbers and the values of that and like when you want to win with the cards that have the abilities that will counteract those or still give you something if you know that you can't outright win something. Mm -hmm. Which all of this together, you think about sort of the the aspects of taking stock and winning bounties and knowing when to use abilities and hell knowing even when to take each particular deck knowing what the correct deck is for the situation that you're in and getting to a point in coins where you're taking first and not your opponent all of this really gives the impression that the game is meticulously designed i i really think they put a lot of thought they put a lot of effort into balancing this yeah very carefully because each deck shines in specific situations and not others so they really force you to think about not just okay i need the biggest number but think about what does each deck do and what do i need right now exactly it really is pretty impressive because we've played other games that are you know small design teams and other things like that that have not been balanced very well and this one so far like from what we've played it seems that each deck has its very specific place and it's you know, objectively, based on numbers, some decks are better than others in terms of just pure, if I'm going head-to-head -head with someone else on this one thing that both of us want, if they get the higher number, they will win. Mm -hmm. But because of the abilities and the other things that they can do, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win the game because of that, or, or even the round, for that matter. Because you could mess with them so much that they end up, you know, screwing themselves by winning that or something like that. Right. So one of the things about this game, you know, we started playing it with just the, the two-player variant. Yeah. So you have a little bit more of a relaxed situation in terms of taking stock. You have to take mm -hmm. eight in a two-player game of each stock in order to win, which does mean that you have more of a buffer, I feel. You know, you're not I agree. Yeah. down at, at four players when you're limited to five of each stock. You can go into overflow very quickly. And so when we were playing the two-player game, we saw cards that allowed you to take the stock as though it were worth two, or increase the amount of stock that you take by two, things like that. And we were thinking to ourselves, okay, great, these are good ways to accelerate the stock that we're taking. Mm -hmm. But when we played a four-player game, new uses for these cards yeah. emerged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Suddenly, the king, which is the card that allows you to treat the bounty as two, became much more of a defensive play because it protects you from your opponents trying to increase the amount that you would take and send you into overflow. So you can use... The king defensively, you can use, I believe it's the Benedict that increases the, the yep. number of, of stock taken by two. 
you can use that offensively, which was something that you hadn't even yep. considered, which I yeah. I later regretted telling you about. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But the number of players in the game, I think, really dramatically changes the nature of the game that you're playing. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it completely changes the feel of the game and just the strategy of when to pick decks. Because, yeah. for example, in a two-player game versus a four-player game, two-player, only two decks are in play. So if you have a card that, for example, counteracts the ounce and the other player doesn't choose the ounce, right? well, that card is just now worth its number. Versus in a four-player game, someone has that out. Exactly. You just have to figure out when they're going to play it. And it's those kinds of considerations that really, I think, make the larger player counts a lot better for the game. I think that with the four-player game that we played, it was a lot more interesting, a lot more strategic. There was a lot more going on than the two-player game. The two-player game was almost, I might even say, a little bit dull. I think part of the problem with the two-player game is that we played a two-player game first. We played two rounds of a two-player game for our first playthroughs of the game. And one of the things about the two-player game, because of the restrictions on when you can take decks, because there are fewer decks being taken per round, and because in a two-player game you're actually given two rows of locations Mm -hmm. so you can plan ahead more than you would be able to in a three- or four-player game, it's very much a setup that rewards knowledge of the decks. Yeah. It rewards yeah. a very thorough understanding of the strategies of each one. And I think playing that as our first game, when we didn't have that knowledge, we were sort of just doing the best we could. But I think if this was a game that we sort of kept playing, you know, if we if we brought it to table a whole bunch, if we played it over and over and over again, and then, you know, maybe 20 playthroughs later... We went back to the two-player version. I think we find it would be a lot richer experience. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because I I think that with a two-player game, you need to have someone who's a very similar skill level. Agreed. Because if you know the cards like the back of your hand, and you're playing against someone who's new, you are going to absolutely crush, destroy, and decimate them. Did someone say no game is perfect? (laughs) Yep, exactly. A great way to segue into that. So yeah, that's that's one of our biggest qualms with the game, I guess. That's one of my biggest qualms. So... You, I think, are going to be playing circles around me in this game within the next few playthroughs. I think you just have a better grasp on what the decks do than I do. And I could maybe learn, uh, but you've you've got much more of a natural sense for it, which means you're always going to know which decks to pick when. And I'm just going to be kind of saying, okay, this seems like a good thing to do. And you're just going to be, oh, I predicted that you would do exactly that. Bam, bam, bam. I ounce you to take the thing that you counteract and then like I can't even I can't even deal with it and so I think that's something that can sort of take away from the game when you've got players with different skill levels and different levels of comfort with the game exactly one thing that we haven't talked about yet is just how the game looks ignoble was made very well like the cards are high quality the pieces that you use as stocks are those really cool little glass beads which are really nice i I, like they feel nice in the hand and everything like that for sure the artwork on the back of the cards on the front of the cards are really nice there are some really cool homages like there's at least one that is to the witch from the king arthur animated movie oh yeah so there's some really cool stuff there that's really really nicely done 
it's easy to tell most things apart and everything like that. They have the little symbols in the corner to tell which deck is which and, and all that kind of stuff. So definitely a very nice addition. But. But I think it's very much overdone. Agreed. This is a game that, it's, it's a trick-taking game. It's a pretty, all in all, simple trick-taking game. It has 16 cards, regular cards. And then the actual cards that have the stock on them, I think there are 12. 12 of them. And then you have the pieces that are the stock. And then the, the boards for the stock to sit on when, when you go. And that's it. Yep. This is a game that should be able to fit in your pocket. Yeah. Like, make it in a box that is the size of Vi, that is the size of Fantasy Realms. A small box, use the regular cubes. It may not feel fully as nice, and you might not have the, you know, the large picture of on the cards because the cards are like jumbo oversized cards. They're they're like if you put two Mystic Veil cards next to each other, <laughs> so like they're big. <laughs> Mystic Veil cards for scale. Yeah, and and they're nice and and they're really done well. But for this game, I think that this is the kind of game that you want to throw in your backpack. And play with your uncle who knows poker. Yeah, totally. Like, it's that kind of... Uh, you want to scale it down. Yeah. So this game was a very limited run. You know, they only produced 50. And it it really shows that they put, you know, a lot of care into it. But it's not currently available. And I think that one of the things that would prevent me from buying my own copy when it does go to store shelves is if it were this box this format and priced 40 to 50 dollars i think jacob's absolutely right you can make a smaller box you can make not as high of quality components obviously you don't want to go you know just paper but you know you don't have to overproduce the game and you know you price it at 20 dollars competitive with games that we talked about like vi like fantasy realms that are transportable and that are easy to just take with you everywhere and introduce to new people i think that is the perfect point for this game yeah i completely agree the last thing that i want to talk about for no, no game is perfect is just something that i think would be interesting if not improve the game a little bit which is currently there are four cards in each deck i would be very interested to see how it would work with five if you mm. had four rounds and five cards so that the last play card play of the round is not a foregone conclusion so that there is still a choice at that end game because otherwise it's like especially in a two-player game or something like that you're just you know what the other player is going to have and sure. like all of them if, if you know the cards well enough you know exactly what is still left in a four-player game and whether or not you're going to win or lose and i think that it would just add that little bit if you had that one extra card that's a, that's just like am i going to choose this one or this one it's it would just add that tiny bit of luck and or a little bit more strategy in that last card play versus it just being all right this is what i got left i don't know i think i might actually push back on that a little i i think you're right i think it would be very interesting i think adding a fifth card would introduce new layers and introduce some variability a little bit of an unknown into that final selection which you're right could definitely get boring you know by the time you're in your sixth round or whatever and you're just like yeah okay fine i know i lose but i also think it would be a 
a pretty different game, not just an improved one. I think one of the design philosophies that's very apparent in Ignoble is precision and awareness and and perfect information, as I mentioned earlier. You know, you know what's available in front of you. In a three and four player game, you even know which location cards are still in the deck. Yeah. You know what's in your opponent's hand, you know what's in your own hand, and then it just becomes about optimizing. And I think that was a very conscious decision. And I think that if you add a fifth card to the deck, although it would make it more interesting, it would take some of that away. It would introduce a little too much variance, I think, for the way the game is designed right now. I might even say that it would be nice if the two-player variant had that versus the four-player. Because I do see where you come from, especially after playing the four-player game. I think I was much more adamant about this before playing the four-player game. Mm. But I still think the two-player game, especially because of literally you just know exactly what's going to happen. I think adding that that fifth card there, maybe just for that one, would actually improve it a bit. But, you know, that, that's just my opinion, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's that's definitely an interesting idea. Overall, Ignoble, what do you rate it? I'm going to give a little bit of a complex rating here. Um, Uh-oh. So, currently, I would say play it. Because it is unavailable to buy. That's um, a good reason to not say buy it. And and the other thing is that uh, I just think that this edition of Ignoble, like I said, it's overproduced. And based on the size and the way that the game looks and everything like that, I think it would be priced a little bit too high for the content. But if this comes out in a smaller edition, like we were saying, in a box that's about the size of Fantasy Realms, at that point, I would say definitely look into buying it because this is definitely a game that I very much enjoyed once I got into it, especially with a higher player count. And I think it would be a lot of fun to bring to table as a quick filler kind of game. Yeah, I think I have to agree on all counts. It is a thoroughly enjoyable game. I think it's well designed. I think it is just the right weight to sort of pick up and play and teach new people. But, you know, I obviously can't give it a buy it because you can't buy it. And as it stands right now, I probably wouldn't buy it at the the size and the quality that it is. But, you know, you shrink it down a little bit and I wouldn't hesitate to give this a buy it if I knew that it were going to be priced around 20 bucks. And there you have it. Real quick before we go, we wanted to point out a few games that we think you'll enjoy if you enjoy Ignoble or vice versa. Quick caveat, we don't actually play a lot of trick-taking games, so we tried to think a little bit outside the box in coming up with our recommendations. The first one is Gonuts for Donuts. So similar theme in terms of you've got an array of things that you're basically bidding for using the cards in your hand, and you've got a lot of similar elements in terms of the sort of head fake that you can do where you make someone think that you want one thing and end up playing a different card. So if you're looking for something that's a little bit lighter and also a little bit less precise, you know, if you just want to accumulate some points and try to be the best there is, I think Gonuts for Donuts is the game. There you go. Another one, and this one is a bit heavier than Ignoble, and it's Inish. Now, those of you who have been listening, you remember Inish from a while ago. We reviewed it. And yeah, it was way back, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, that was quite a bit ago. And one of the things about Inish is that it is all card-based. And even though you're going for the territory control, you draft cards at first. So people know what you've had to choose from. Mm -hmm. And you have a large element of those head games of like, 
when are you going to play certain cards, which cards can you play, and things like that, which are very similar to Ignoble. In Ignoble, you're just trying to calculate, like, you know, who's going to play what for with Bounty. In this, you're like, are they going to play this card now? Will they want to block me? Will they want to block someone else? Like, you know, are they getting close? Like, is it one card away from victory or, or other things like that? And so it has a very similar feel, but as if you brought it up a little bit, another level of complexity, especially with the whole aspect of placement and territory control. And there you have it. That's our review of Ignoble. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Don't forget to join us every Wednesday for our stream, including this Wednesday. And tune in next week when we're joined by a brand new voice when we review City of Iron.